long time ago your they nickname was tv ted <laughs> but yeah. my goodness you have a collection of videos on jfk research the assassination uh you know agree or disagree or whatever but you just have so much good work that i just want to make sure i interviewed you again to help promote that and uh tell people about it because i think you must have done 10 videos since i had you on when we you were on here like a month or two ago a little longer than that maybe Regardless, probably, yeah, probably so. I had a lot of pent up, uh, pent up energy because <laughs> I hadn't been able to really uh, uh, do a lot of work in it uh, in the whole JFK assassination uh, arena for a while. Um, so uh, there was so much that I that I you know, have wanted to get out that I uh, just said I'm going to just go ahead and do it. So uh, that's why the <laughs> that's why the the large number of videos in a short period of time. Well, it's phenomenal, and so I'm going to make a link to your channel, and and uh, let's give people just a brief overview of what you expect on your YouTube channel and what you hope to accomplish here, because you're you're covering everything. I mean, it's it's just um, there's so much shitty work and 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 books that you you know total all this is garbage and this you know and the and the um, you know Posners and the McAdams and this and that and then. I come across your work and go, oh, these are the real facts. And actually, read between the lines here, and and, and you're putting it out there for people. I know I tried something in 2013. It was 50 reasons for 50 years, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and those were short. They were meant to be three to five minutes short attention span. The average point of your videos is about 20 minutes, I'd say. You know, mm -hmm. so you got here 28, 21, 21, 14, 31, 23. So you you tackle a topic and you really go into it for a, a decent enough amount of time that people really get an idea. I mean, you're really lifting the fraud of, of, of what happened in this crime. I'm trying. And, and I think that's the my biggest concern is that. I believe we're getting farther and farther away. Sixty years is is quite a, a long time since the assassination happened, and I my biggest fear is that people will all of a sudden forget how much of a fraud that the whole surrounding environment uh, to the to the assassination and the cover up was. 
Um, I think if you look at the statistics, uh, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, up to 75, 80% of people um, had serious questions about what we were told about the assassination. And that's gone down a little bit. And I think one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to do the channel um, is because obviously, like you and a lot of other people, I've always felt very, very passionate about uh, what happened, um, especially being alive at the time that it actually happened at, I guess, seven years old. Uh, but um, I think that uh, what I really worry is that um, uh, the people that that participated in the assassination and especially the cover-up um, will just finally get away with it. And I think that we have a real opportunity uh, to bring uh, clarity a little bit to to people um, when they and let them make up their own mind. But the only way to do that is to really, and I've been a little repetitive with some of the videos in that, especially the last month, in the sense that I've really tried to concentrate on a lot of the basics. Uh, because I think if you just start with the basics, then and people actually take the time to understand and review them, it doesn't take a whole lot of research or understanding or put the time put in to come to the conclusion that, uh, of course, it was a conspiracy. Of course, a lot of people were involved. Of course, there was a massive cover-up. And of course, the American people have been told just a load of bunk for the last 60 years. Um, so that's really where the, the idea of the channel came from. Um, and I've just because of my schedule and, and uh, um, um, my uh, teaching duties, I've, I've um, not been able to really produce a lot of work on it. Um, and that's why I've been, you know, dependent and have always loved Black Op Radio and all the work that you do and um, all the folks that you have on. It's just such a, um, it's just such a resource that um, that I could, I, I don't have, I didn't have to get too far away from it, uh, even when I wasn't able to have the time to really put in. Uh, but that's that's kind of a, you know, an overview of, of kind of why I'm, um, uh, um, you know, have have. Uh, produce the channel right now um let's talk about one episode you've got one a couple of weeks ago called trust your eyes proof mm. of the conspiracy is easy to mm -hmm. see you know you you go through a couple of pictures like you mentioned just tell me what what was the um motivation for that episode mm. Well, I think that um, there's so much that I consider obvious, and I think that a lot of people who have researched the, the whole assassination day and weekend uh, realize is, is obvious that, um, you know, and you get pulled away by some of this other stuff and all the little minutiae in the case, but sometimes it's just the stuff right in front of our eyes that really um, should probably be most important. And that's why when you go down and you look at, um, what happened on the exact day of the assassination? And I start with uh, the umbrella man and the radio man, the dark complected man, who um, are in pictures right there. Uh, the guy is obviously on a military grade radio. There's nobody that's ever going to change my mind about that. And there'd be no reason for, for both of those those two men to be right at the area of the triangulation of fire in Dilly Plaza uh, if they weren't signalmen. And the whole thing about Lewis Witt and the, and the vague reference to, uh, to you know, 
40s England. I don't buy any of that stuff. Um, I think that they were signalmen. I think it's obvious they were signalmen. And you look at um, when even when the, the guy with the radio was walking away and you've got those famous shots of it stuffed in his back pocket and the antenna under his shirt. You know, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I'm, I'm, I'm so smiley here laughing at the whole thing. For maybe for those who aren't familiar... Um, mm-hmm. Why don't you just give give a brief description of of what that man said he was doing with the umbrella? He's yeah. making a reference. To, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the exact reference, and I ha- um, it was it was uh, who was the guy in England? I can't think of the guy's name in England. Chamberlain it. was it? Chamberlain uh, appeasing right. Hitler or something like that, right? Yeah, some some right. Okay. Yeah, uh, the umbrella man was making. He stated later. If you really believe him, the guy's name was Lewis Witt. That came forth about, you know, I guess it was 10 or 20 years later. I forget whether it was during the House Select Committee on Assassinations. But he made, he said that he, was, he, he had the umbrella because of some vague reference to Neville Chamberlain, some uh, references to Joseph Kennedy, John Kennedy's father, and Nazis. And it, it was just so bizarre that I don't... Uh, and I, I can't remember the exact specifics. Yeah, yeah but, but it's it... just so unbelievable if you look it up. And then when he went there in 1978 or 77, uh, to, 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 he, he swore this was the same umbrella. He opened yeah. it up to people kind of laughed as a gun got to go off. And then when he right. somebody took a picture of it, when they compared it, it didn't have the same, not spines, but whatever they're called in the umbrella. Right. It didn't have mm-hmm. the same amount, so it wasn't even really the same umbrella. Not that it mattered right. ten, you know, eighteen years right. later or whatever, but but just the just the idea. No, of course it's not. You know, and this reference to uh, uh, you know Chamberlain appeasing Hitler and all that, and that, you know by him pumping an umbrella up and down, that's what he was doing. I mean, it's come on. To me, it's like when people show you. Commission, commission exhibit 399 they go well you know here's the evidence i'm like what <laughs> yeah i don't yeah. believe that no matter what happened you know no right. matter if the driver shot him or alan dulles you know coup or whatever no that's not that's not the bullet that did anything exactly you know now it's it's come out through others research that lewis witt worked for uh, an insurance agency in dallas that housed the secret service so i mean there's that connection also um so I, the whole like you said the whole story is just so bizarre and and what really makes it um untenable is that if you look at the famous picture well i consider it famous where they're sitting on the curb the Umbrella Man and the Dark Complected Man. The Dark Complected Man is clearly on a military-grade radio, and the Umbrella Man is sitting right next to him, no more than two feet away, and he's looking right at him. So at the very least, even if he wasn't involved, he could see that someone was on that radio. And when he went to testify before the House Select Committee, the Umbrella Man, Lewis Witt, um, he said... Uh, he made up some crazy story uh, about he just remembered some someone sitting saying they done shot that man or something, some crazy, ridiculous statement when he's sitting right next to the guy who's on a military-grade radio. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't cut it. For anybody that just looks at the picture, you know, you can make up your own mind there. Well, the real public service here is that y- you've, you know, done what an investigation should have done. 
You know, like well, everybody you know, failed it, us. FBI, CIA, right. intelligence. They they did not look for what happened. They all they did right. was cover it up. Right. And if you if you just run down what happened on that day, I mean, just just off the you know the top of my head, as as soon as, soon as the the shots ring ring out, you've got all the radio, all the um, the railway men, and tons and tons of other people that are running towards the grassy knoll because they think that the shot came from there. Um, some of them, especially the railroad men, think they've seen puffs of smoke. They smell gunpowder when they run up there. So they all run up there, led by one of the motorcycle policemen, Joe Marshall Smith. Um, and what happens when he runs up there behind the gate? The first thing that happens is, and he's got his gun drawn at this point, the first thing that happens is he's met by someone who shows him Secret Service credentials. And we know that there were no Secret Service agents in Dilley Plaza at that time. They were all in the motorcade uh, on the way to Parkland Hospital. So Joe Marshall Smith has his gun drawn. He's shown what he re- recognizes as legitimate Secret Service credentials. Uh, and it holds him up from, from actually, you know, moving forward. Seymour Weitzman, uh, another Dallas police officer, runs into someone who is a, tells him he's a Secret Service agent. And Seymour Weitzman actually hands him a piece of JFK's skull that he picked up from Elm Street. Um, then you've got other people that have that run into those agents, people who have uh, people like um, um, Mary Mormon's film. Gene Hill uh, is holding pictures for Mary Mormon and um, someone takes her pictures, you know, that she never gets back. So you've got you've got the obvious right there that someone ha- is someone is covering up um, for the escape of the shooter or shooters. Um, by controlling the crime scene. There's nobody that's ever going to change that. That's that's what the testimony was from Officer Joe Marshall Smith and Seymour Weitzman and anybody that believes the ridiculous um, Warren Commission report. It, you, it's it's in there. So so you you certainly can't say that that that's uh, that's made up. Uh, and then you go and. You know, you move on that day. Is it okay that I do this, Len? Just kind of run through that day a little bit. Is that is that oh, okay with go you? Go ahead. Yeah, this is fantastic. <laughs> I, I just get so frustrated. You know, then you move from from there, and you realize that that um, you know, as the as soon as the motorcade gets to Parkland Hospital, um, within about you know five to ten minutes, all the news reporters get there. Seth Cantor is a Scripps Howard National. Um, reporter, um, and he runs into almost right away Jack Ruby, and they have a conversation. Ruby tells him that, um, oh, isn't this horrible, and I think I may close my clubs for a couple of nights, and Seth Cantor says, um, yeah, I think that would be a good idea, but I really can't talk. I have to, to move on. And that's in the um, the uh, the video that's um, easily found uh, with Seth Cantor, you know, saying that in, um, I believe it was the man who killed Kennedy. Um, and so, and then the Warren Commission doesn't believe Seth Cantor. They say, "Oh, we must have made a mistake and run into Ruby later." Well, that's ridiculous. He 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 didn't. He he knew what that conversation was. So we can prove that Jack Ruby was was at Parkland Hospital. Then you know you have the famous pictures of every doctor and nurse that that. Um, examined President Kennedy in trauma room one. Everybody, you've got the famous picture where everybody's holding their hand behind their head, 
um, where um, the exit wound was, and unfortunately, you know, the back of, of his skull uh, and the parietal temporal region is is totally blown out. So, you know, that's not going to change. A fake autopsy later is not going to change that. That that happened. Then you look at what Oswald did, which was totally, totally um, um, scripted. Um, and and you know, when you look at Oswald, you have to go back and you have to say, well, well, you know. Uh, we can get into that a little a little bit later if it's okay with you because I I would like to kind of run through that but but I, I, my firm belief is that Lee Oswald had was the FBI informer in Chicago three weeks before Dallas and that he was the one that provided the FBI with the tips that the shooter the shooting team was in Chicago uh, my firm belief is that he was also trying to save the life of Kennedy in uh, Dallas that weekend. Um, and that he went to the that he w- went to the Texas theater to meet an FBI contact. That's my that's what I truly believe. And if you look at what he did after he left the the uh, Texas School Book Depository, you know he gets on the Marcella Street bus. Well, that's not his bus. That wouldn't he, that's not the bus that he normally would have have gotten on. Um, and then of course he gets stuck in traffic and he gets off and he goes to grab a taxi to get across the Houston Street Viaduct. But right after he gets off, you have two Dallas police police officers that and I know you've done research on this that a lot of people, including me. Um, believe were William Westbrook and Kenneth Croy, um, who uh, were, I believe, who, who were stalking him. But, but j- just sticking with what we know, um, after that, um, he goes, and you have um, Officer Tippett, um, who's sitting in the Gloco station right across the Houston Street viaduct, way out of his his um, where he should be over in uh, closer to Oak Cliff or at the assassination site, he lies about it to his dispatcher. Uh, it's on Zhang Street there. So um, uh, when the Marcello Street bus finally comes across the Houston Street viaduct, um, you have Officer Tippett following it because it didn't let anybody off. He expected Oswald to get off of the bus there, but it, no one got off, so he follows that. And he's in a he's in a, a, a kind of a crazy period because he's panicking. He goes and he's he goes in the top ten record shop and he makes a call that it doesn't get answered. I think he was trying to call Westbrook, um, but then he gets out. He stops uh, he stops the car. He doesn't use his lights. He pulls out in front of the car and he goes and he he looks in the back seat. Doesn't say a word to the driver. Um, gets back in his car and he heads right off to Tenth and Patton. So he was obviously looking for Oswald, you know, and maybe he thought he saw somebody in the back seat of that car. Uh, but he goes to 10th and, Os- uh, and Patton where he's killed. And um, Oswald, in the meantime, um, he goes um, to his house, uh, to his rooming house uh, on Beckley Street and gets, his, um, gets a gun, gets a jacket, comes out. I believe he goes right to the Texas Theater where Butch Burroughs sees him at about 110 when he goes in there. There is no way he goes towards the, the, um, 
the, uh, the the bus stop, the stop sign and the bus stop, then turns around and goes a mile. Why would, where would he be going if he was going there? It made no, it makes no sense. So he's in the Texas theater. And then, you know, I'll skip some of that. But then you look at what happens next. And you've got two Oswalds. You've got two Oswalds that are arrested in the Texas theater that day. You've got Lee Oswald being arrested on the first floor. And everybody is, is you know, familiar with that. Um, and even the seat that he's taken from. And he comes out the front door. Well, then you look and you've got the official record of a second man being called Lee Oswald, being arrested in the balcony. So he comes out the back door. He's arrested in the back door. Nobody even really realizes it because those people who saw it out the back door think that, you know, they're watching the, the, the actual Lee Oswald that we all know and get arrested. And then all of a sudden, all records of that arrest out the back door are, are just get lost, get just just lost in the ether. I mean, it makes no sense at all. Um, you know, so you go and you, and you, and you, you follow that day. Um, and, uh, uh, you see, you realize that, um, that second Oswald, the one that's, um, that's, uh, you know, went out and was arrested and went out the back door. People see him sitting in a car. That car gets traced back to Collins Radio, which, um, which were, were um, people that probably um, supplied the, uh, the radios um, or at least were involved with the communications for the, uh, for the, the assassination. Uh, and then, you know, it, it just goes on and on and on. They take the body away. They take the limo away without having any doctor, um, doctors um, or officials get a chance to, to uh, examine them at all. And, and it just it gets to the point of um, it doesn't take a lot of common sense um, to just to just come to the conclusion that um, something's not right. This isn't the way it would normally be. And then, of course, you've got you know when the when the limousine gets back to well, first of all, there's a there's a lady, Evelia Glanges, I believe is her name. She was she was a uh, a resident at that time at Parkland Hospital, but but you know she clearly saw a through and through hole from the front to the back. Um, and she was around guns her whole life. She's in the Men Who Killed Kennedy um, documentary, if anybody wants to look at that. Um, she saw that. Um, when the, the limousine gets flown to uh, back to um, Washington, there's uh, two people that um, have, uh, you know, reported that they saw the uh, front-to-back hole with fragmentation, um, you know, in the back. Um, and then all of a sudden, as is proven by um, researcher um, Doug Weldon, who I'm sure you've, you've probably had on the show, you know, he showed just tremendous research where he showed that the, the, uh, the, the limousine was flown on Sunday night, the 24th, to uh, Michigan, where it went to the, um, to the uh, Ford uh, manufacturing plant. They had a name for it, and I can't remember it right now. But, uh, you know, and where the, uh, the gentleman walked in who's Yeah, in Dearborn, right? Yeah, Dearborn. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. And, you know, and he sees the, the whole, he sees the Kennedy limousine there. The inside is all stripped out, all the interior. Then he goes to the, to the fabrication shop um, and sees the window, the original window, and he, and he um, you know, is on 
film actually, you know, swearing that he saw a front to back small hole there. Um, and he's told that, uh, they are to use the original wind plate, uh, windshield as a template and put a new windshield in, you know, and then you go back and you have Dr. Uh, Crenshaw, uh, who, you know, who just states right out. Yeah, we saw Dr. Perry and I both saw a small wound of entry in the president's throat. Uh, and there's just no question in their mind about from either of them. And then Dr. Perry does the tracheotomy, of course, which kind of obliterates the uh, the hole, which is a real shame. But of course, he's just doing everything he can, you know, uh, as you would as you would hope and expect to try to save the president's life at that point. Uh, but then the 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 um, it doesn't the, the front entry wound doesn't get examined by Dr. Humes when they go to um, Bethesda for the official autopsy. So it goes on and on and on. Uh, but you don't have to look much further than that day. You look at Jack Ruby, besides being a Parkland hospital, where, what does he do then? Then he goes over to Dallas police headquarters after, you know, some people say he was at the Texas theater. I, I have no knowledge of any of that, but, but, you know, he's definitely at the Dallas police headquarters. He, tr he opens the door, tries to get into where they're interviewing, um, Ali Oswald there. Then he's seen in the hallway and he's got a gun on him at, at this, at this point, you know, he doesn't use it, you know, for anything. Um, and then he um, he goes and he's uh, he goes and he's seen at uh, Henry Wade's midnight press conference and he's standing right by the reporters. And when Henry Wade has problems remembering the Fair Play for Cuba committee organization, you know it's Ruby and a few others that that correct him. How would Jack Ruby know that? And, and there's some you know there were some reports. Oh well, maybe he heard it on the radio. That's ridiculous. You know he he was with. Oswald <laughs> during the summer. That's how he knows it. But anyway, you know, from there, he, um, uh, from there, from the midnight news conference, then all of a sudden he's tasked with killing Oswald. And it becomes obvious because he's the guy that caused the Dallas police station trying to, um, tell them that if Oswald, if the transfer of Oswald remains as scheduled the next morning, we're going to kill him. That was his exact words. He also caused the FBI. No, he doesn't say this is Jack Ruby, but even the FBI um, says that Gordon Shanklin of the FBI, when he's testifying, says that it was probably the same guy. And the guy in the Dallas police, and I can't remember the officer's name, but but he recognized after, as soon as he's seen that Jack Ruby did the shooting of Oswald, he recognizes that it was Jack Ruby that, that called him. And then how does Jack Ruby get into the, into the basement of the Dallas police of the, the Dallas and, city And by the jail? way, just hate to yeah. when he called there, he called to Warren and he said, we're going to kill him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think you know? what happened, you know, I just, if you wanted to speculate that he didn't want to have to do this. But he was forced to. So we, he was hoping that there would be, you know, you know, two hundred cops around, and there's no way he could get in. But, exactly. You know. You know yeah. So. But yeah. Speculation. And then how's he? How's he get into the basement? You know, all those officers. The, the officer that is stationed on the outside swears, swore to the day he died, where that Jack Ruby never came. You know, past there, nobody saw him come down that rampway. He obviously was let in a back door side door, whatever, you know, and then he, um, 
he, uh, you know, commits the murder. And he's standing right next to Kenneth Croy when he does it. And Kenneth Croy is the part-time officer, the guy who's not even allowed to carry a gun, but he's the guy that is the first on scene at the Tippett murder. Um, and uh, also the, the guy that finds the wallet out at the Tippett murder site that has both identification cards for Lee Oswald and A.J. Hiddell. Uh, he gives it to Westbrook, and then all of a sudden that wallet totally disappears. Nobody ever, it just, again, back into this thin air. Um, nobody even can ever explain it. And it's because they were, you know, planning on planting the wallet on Oswald. That was the reason they needed to get Oswald killed, was because, you know, I believe that that he had, you know, because he was, well, I mean, if you look at 1963, um, you look at Oswald and you realize that, especially during the summer of 1963, he was really, um, he was really working and infiltrating some really, really violent anti-Castro paramilitary groups. They were um, just, just, some of the most violent, I guess, is the way to put it. They were definitely ones like um, Alpha 66 and JUR, DRE, Directorio Revolutionary Estudiantial, I guess it is, and then the Cuban um, Revolutionary Council, the CRC. You had all of these ones that were very, very violent, out of control. Um, the FBI and the CIA are kind of on different pages in the 60s, in, in 1963. Um, so you've got Oswald, who, you know, is set up by handing out the Fair Play for Cuba, you know, committee uh, leaflets in New Orleans. But, you know, that was obviously was he's working with Guy Bannister. It's obviously that, you know, just a, just a fake. He's um, he's what he's really doing is infiltrating a lot of these anti-Castro Cuban paramilitary organizations that are being supported financially and with military equipment by the CIA, and they're totally out of control. Um, and I firmly believe that he became aware of efforts to assassinate Kennedy through his association with those groups. I think that he was the one that, that provided the tip to J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI that saved Kennedy in Chicago. And I think he was probably aware that there were more um, efforts to kill him in Dallas. But I think what he didn't realize was that his FBI contacts had turned on him and were part of the, you know, part of the overall plan to have him be the patsy. But if he would not have been shot, I mean, you know, I say, I think in one of my videos, if you think about it, that 48 hours between, you know, when he shot Kennedy and when he got killed by Ruby, that had to be some of the most panicked people in the world <laughs> you know, during that weekend. Because what would Oswald have done? I mean, he, you know, he realized he was the patsy. And, you know, he tried to make the call to New North Carolina, which they didn't allow to go through to, to get to his cutout. But what would he have done? He would have realized right away, you know, and it, that, you know, he was being played. And look who he could have revealed. He could have revealed everybody that was involved in the Chicago plot, everybody that was involved in the Dallas plot. He knew an awful lot, and it wouldn't have taken him 
too long to come clean with those names because he would have realized what was going on. I mean, obviously, this is my opinion, but that's the reason they had to get him before he talked, and they didn't have a lot of time because once he started talking, he would be talking to people that weren't involved in the cover-up. He would be, he, it, it, it would have had to have been that way. They were able to not record anything he said, uh, Oswald, the whole time he was in Dallas, maybe, although I'm still not sure, you know, I'm still not sure I believe that. But, you know, just taking handwritten notes, that sounds pretty weird to me, even, even for 1963. But certainly he would have been exposed to people who weren't part of that plot. And all of a sudden, all those people who were part of the plot um, would have been exposed. So, you know, there was no more person on the face of the earth that they, that they needed to, to kill, you know, that weekend than, than Lee Oswald, because he could have exposed the whole nine yards. Um, and, uh, you know, that certainly would have been interesting. So sorry, thank you for letting me kind of run through that. I just, I get, uh, I get a little frustrated when, when I think about what happened that weekend, because, uh, there was so much that, um, again, is common sense that if, if you just think about it, um, you know, it all starts to come together. The part that I used to have problems with was um, why did Lee Oswald go to the Texas theater? You know, um, I used to have problems with that. But now I realize it was because he had to have been meeting a contact, and I believe the contact would have had to have been from the FBI because that's who he had made the the um, uh, uh, the tip to in Chicago. Um, and we even know that that um, from, um, you know, the the um, investigation there, that it was a tip from someone named Lee uh, to the FBI that that exposed that plot. So if it was Lee Oswald and I'm, you know, I'm confident that it was him. Um, he had to think that he was meeting an FBI contact. What, and, and, and it makes sense that he would have gone back to Beckley Street to get a gun because, you know, all of a sudden he realizes that, you know, these people are so out of control. They just shot the president. I don't know what I'm going to be tasked to do. I'm meeting my contact. You know, I should be armed, you know, and that makes sense. You know, if he had been the the shooter, if he had been the lone nut shooter, that's the last thing he would have done. He would have need, he would have had everything with him that he needed, including you know a handgun or a pistol. And if he wasn't the type of person that was doing it for um, for not, for notoriety, um, like a lot of those folks do that that do that kind of stuff, what would he have done? You know, all he had to do was get on a bus. If he didn't really drive, all he had to do was get on a bus or take a taxi out of town. The Mexican border was 400 miles away. It was an open border at that time. He could have crossed. Um, they say that you know he was in Mexico City a month earlier trying to get into Cuba and the Soviet Union anyway. So that's what he would have done. Um, there is no way the guy would have gone to the Texas theater um, if he had actually killed uh, the president, he was meet, trying to meet a contact, and right. he you was mean, sat around waiting, moving from person exactly. to person. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So anyway, <laughs> I get a little bit, uh, a little bit. Um, well, you know, John Armstrong, who has done so much good work in this. Yeah. Whether you subscribe to, with me, Harvey and Lee, or or Lee and an imposter, 
you know? And yeah. as soon as I leave it like that, I go, now it all makes sense. I'm just going to mm-hmm. call the guy the imposter. John calls him Harvey, you know, Lee Harvey, yes. so whatever. But his, um, his opinion is that the handgun was given to him, mm-hmm. that if he was given a ride to the theater, yes. uh, the jacket and the gun would have been given to him. And he said, here, you know, take this. And, yes. uh, you know, so, but, you know, that's just small points. I also urge everyone to listen, to which I'm, I'm playing some audio that I recorded during the springtime here with John Armstrong. And yeah. um, he has done some good work, too. And, and you know, oh. the thing I like, I say this all the time about John, you don't have to subscribe to every little thing that, yeah. that our fellow researchers do. You go, well, I'm not so sure about Harvey and Lee, but... Lee and an imposter? I'm sure of that, so let's just keep going, you know? And yeah, you exactly. agree with people to the 85% or whatever? Yeah, I think John Armstrong is one of the greatest researchers. I've, I mean, he's amazing. And you got, you work with him, I know, very closely, and you, you guys work on projects. And, you know, I, I think he's one of the best researchers we've ever had. And I, I tend to agree with you. I agree with, um, you know, almost all of what he says, except for, you know, I I think it was an imposter. You know that yeah. that they were. But you using. know, like that, we don't have yeah. to dwell on that. We can say, yeah. listen, yeah. all the work that that we networking because of the internet now, and because we can email and share videos and research, we can say this is what we agree on. And as we just yeah. start with Commission Exhibit three ninety nine. We agree yep. this bullet didn't do what they said it did. Okay, then further. Then you look at the photographic evidence. Were these guys on a walkie-talkie? Were they right there? Were they, you know, a guy with an umbrella? Um, you know, <laughs> you know. so like your episode, uh, trust your eyes. Yep. You know, they just, just look at all this evidence, right? Yeah. And then, you know, because um, we have a real failing, I think, with, I mean, for instance, I think if you're, I hate to change the topic in a way, but if you're a fan of Donald Trump, when you look at the way the FBI and the Justice Department is treating him, you'd say, this is not fair. Something's wrong. And, you know, you, you know, <laughs> the thing about Biden, and I think that they, they found some cocaine in the White House one weekend, and his son and all the illegal money going back, it's kind of like nothing there. But um, everything Trump has done, the they're really coming down on him. And... I'm not sticking up for him because before he ran, when I was watching his TV show and that, I thought, oh, he's a real estate con man, you know. But, um, you know, they sure are coming down heavy-handed on him for everything. And, um, you know, that's not right either. And here the Justice Department is working. You, you kind of, with the way we're growing up, we go to school, we're taught these certain, you know, ideals and morals. And then you go, yeah, but the government isn't working like that. If you're their enemy, they're kicking down your door. They're arresting you. That you can't see the charges. You know, it's just like. Yeah. And here, investigating the crime of the murder of President Kennedy, it's taken ordinary citizens to put all this in perspective and say, "Well, you know, look at this." I mean, think of the the people who went through the Warren Commission documents to start with. Those twenty six yeah. volumes. I mean. Yeah. You know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say, right? Absolutely. And then, then the people, like you say, that um, there's still people that believe Lee Oswald did it. They're still heckling Jim Garrison. I mean, yeah. it, it's just almost beyond reason. And you go, well, I mean, I guess it t- takes all kinds or whatever the expression would be, right? Mm-hmm. But your good work, John Armstrong, I think like-minded people around the community are going into all these details, that just one after another yeah. 
demolish the Warren Commission. And then it makes you stand back and say, well, if this is the best the U.S. government had to offer its citizens, like what else are they lying about or to what end? And one of the things that I hope doesn't happen is that I hope that you know, at some point, uh, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that the CIA will say, oh, yeah, okay, we admit it that way back, you know, in the 60s, 60 years ago or more, there were some rogue elements and, you know, they may have been involved. You know, I, 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 I really hope that if that happens, that the American people don't let them off of that because it wasn't. You know, a few, it, it, it was it, it may have been rogue elements from the CIA, but it permeated and the cover up was just as bad or worse um, than um, the actual assassination. Um, and I've never I've never been able to firmly one way or another in my mind ever make up my uh, make a decision on whether I thought that J. Edgar Hoover was. Um, was um, privy to the fact that you know there was there was an assassination attempt. I'm sure he knew that you know th- there were attempts that were that were out there, but but um, you know I, I've never I'm still not convinced that he actually was part of it or knew anything about it. But but I mean, what did he do right away? You know, from the first day on, they, they he he certainly participated as a major figure in the cover up. And and when you look at it. You know, um, it wasn't just John Kennedy that was was killed. If you look at, you know, the number of people that were killed all the way through Jim Garrison's investigation, there was a lot of murders that were that took place that I'm sorry if you can hear my dog barking in the background. Well, you were talking about J. Edgar Hoover. I have my um, my thoughts about Alan Dulles. And so when you say, you know, it's not the the whole building of the CIA, but rogue elements, whatever. Yeah, yeah. The guys who were fired and and his friends. Now, the the thing is about looking for this, like if you're looking for J. Edgar Hoover or or where does it go? It's kind of like this. I use the analogy of like paleontologists that you all of a sudden you find a bone that's so big you go, well, how can this be? You know? Yes, exactly. How can this be that something is so huge we have to really change our scale this this could be a lot bigger than we thought it is it's massive and that's what you know i i had a difficult time with that over the years because i could not believe that it could be as massive as i now believe that it is and then you know but when you look at you look at jim garrison's investigation and you look at all the people like david ferry and Eladio del valley that were killed literally within an hour of each other um as soon as the um as soon as garrison's investigation became public, you know, and then you look at all of the CIA agents who admittedly infiltrated Garrison's investigation. That, of course, would not have happened if, unless they were, you know, up to it and uh, to their eyeballs. They would have, they would have, you know, if, if it had been a, a, a normal situation, um, they would have given, given somebody like a district attorney Garrison as much support as they possibly could. Instead, they made sure that they took him down. That, like he said in the famous Playboy interview that he did, you know, they accused him of everything except, uh, you know, <laughs> except killing Abraham Lincoln. You know, um, uh, trying to get the American people to not, um, to not respect his investigation. So, you know, you've got you've got people, and and you know, again, I don't have any knowledge of this, but I mean, even when you look at, 
you look at the, you know, Sunday, November 24th, when, you know, when Ruby got killed, and you look at the two news reporters, Jim Coffin, Bill Hunter, along with uh, Tom Howard, the, the attorney, um, they went over to, to Ruby's apartment with George Senator, his roommate at the time. And, you know, within, what, two years, Hunter and Coth are both dead. One of them gets shot in the Long Beach. Hunter gets shot in the Long Beach police station, you know, with a single shot to the heart. Coth is, is murdered as he stepped out of the shower. You know, and they were both doing investigative work into the assassination at that time, you know. I mean, does that really make sense? What are the odds of that? You know, you look at you look at some of the people that were the key witnesses. Um, you know, the the railroad. Um, well, I can't think of his name. The railroad guy that's up in the tower. That that Lee Bowers. Yes, Lee Bowers. You know, he's killed in a real weird way. You look at you know the Dorothy Kilgallen um, situation. You look at all of these others, and it just doesn't make sense. And if if they were murdered as part of the cover up, then you know what does that say about someone like the the agencies that we trust? Um, it, it just is. It's just horrid when you actually think about that. But it, but it shouldn't be that un, unreasonable because when you think about what the the CIA was doing under Alan Dulles, I mean, even during the Bay of Pigs, even invasion and the Cuban Missile Crisis, they were sending um, teams in to, to try and create a war as much as they could. They, they, they blew up that, the ship um, in uh, uh, Havana Harbor. Um, they were, uh, even during the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, who was it? Was it David Atlee Phillips? I can't remember exactly, but you know they were actually sending um, raiding parties in, and they were trying to do everything they could to you know stoke the fire so that a war would actually happen. I mean, they, when you're that out of control uh, as they were under Alan Dulles, then I guess anything's possible. Even you know hunting down and kid and killing witnesses to the that that you know may be able to blow their uh their cover in the jfk assassination and that's just um that's just frightening i mean on every level that's just horrendously frightening yeah that's a, a good summation of it because like you said not only was john kennedy killed then all these other people were killed they had to have people who gave orders to say get rid of that guy get rid of him and then you think about martin luther king and bobby kennedy yeah. and others and, uh, you know, Michael Hastings in our time, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. How many videos do you have here? I'm... You know, I haven't counted them, actually. Um, I, <laughs> I just, I, I, I've just kind of been on a roll, so I've been, you know, kind of pushing a few of them out, but, um, you know, to build the channel. But, uh, but um, you know, I, uh, I'll be slowing down a little bit. I just needed to get, you know, get a lot of that stuff kind of off my mind and, um, you know, and... Uh, um, as I get uh, a little bit closer to uh, retirement here, I, um, you know, hope to be able to do more work in it and, um, you know, um, do some, you know, uh, some more, more investigation. The problem is, is that, you know, we're, we're so far out from it now that it's really difficult to do any more original re research. Um, so you just have to, um, you know, you do, you do the best you can with it, but, um, but, uh, well, you know you what? Know. It doesn't even have to be that it's original if that we pool our information and then, yeah. like your videos, may have information 
people already know, but you you've mm-hmm. put it out there in this very I'm not quite sure the right word palatable, but just you've laid it out. Okay, it's very organized, and and there's topics, and um and it's a good healthy you know twenty minutes. It's not just like uh, saying you know here's the gun, here's the bullet, and he did it or he didn't do it. You know, you you've sure. gone right through there, and um. Especially the, the, you know, the trust your eyes, you know, look at all this stuff. Now you're going to tell me this one man and then from the grave he went out to, you know, continually lock up the information for 60 years? Yeah. Man, he's crafty. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. (laughs) But yeah, well, you know, you've... You know, thank God for, you know, I've told you in the past, um, you know, how many times that I've gone back to look at Black Ops shows to um, get information and to find out facts. And um, it's such a resource um, that, um, you know, there's nothing like it. You've done such a great job with that over the over the years that you've had it on. And you've covered everything and you've had such great guests. And, and you know, it's just so much fun to, to, to listen to it um, because... Um, it just keeps me so um, so interested, and and you know, and then I want to do more when I hear what everybody else is doing. You know, it just it like you said, it's kind of a community that where everybody you know kind of builds off of everybody else, and um, you know, I hope before the day right. I die that at least something will come out. Right, because you know, somebody like like John Armstrong is looking through old material, but when, and then he puts out he puts out a video or some audio or his website, and he says. You know, look at there's there's two shirts here. How is he wearing a a brown shirt yeah. or a white shirt? Or where yeah. did they find this jacket under the you know? Or yeah, how did Westbrook get there? How did you know? I mean, yeah. he asks enough questions that it forces you to go through there, and you go, yeah, there's something wrong yeah. here. And exactly, uh, exactly. Especially, yeah, he's amazing. I mean, you did that a, a great um, the icon for the, for the video you have on trust your eyes. It's just that guy standing up, tucking that walkie talkie in in the back of his pocket. Now, Uh, no matter what happened that day, you just look at that one picture and you say, well, what's, what's with that? I mean, if he's on a walkie talkie right at the scene where a guy's just been pumping an umbrella up and down. Right. And then they, I think they found a yellow X on a curb. Yeah. And you, you know, it just, yeah. Then you say, yeah. "Well, what kind of government do we have? Like, wh- yeah. what have they?" And, and you look at, you look at all the other people that that were just let get. Like, like I've always thought the whole um, Eugene Brading um, incident, where he's he's um, he's uh, arrested in the Dow Techs building for for being suspicious, and then uh, they basically let him go when he says he was, you know, just in there to make a phone call. Well, that's Jim Braden. You know, he's got 35 arrests at that time in California. Um, you know, and he says he's there on oil business. What oil business is he there on? You know, he was there, I, I believe, as part of the as part of the the assassination team. Um, you know, they have all these other people that were arrested that day. Not only did they not. You know, there's no record that they actually were even questioned, but they, but there's no records of them now even being arrested. So we don't even know who they were. I mean, someone had to get rid of all that stuff. That had to be planned. That all of the all of that information that was taken that day was just destroyed. You look at all the people that could have been called before the Warren Commission or or a body that was really trying to get to the truth, and you look at all the the folks that that heard the shots 
um, from the grassy knoll and ran up there, and some of them saw smoke and smelled gunpowder like we talked about. Well, none of them were called by the Warren Commission. Not one of them was called by the Warren Commission. What kind of an investigative body is that? Um, it just makes no sense. I mean, everybody knows who Charles Brem and his wife is when, when they when they were down on the ground covering their children, you know. And, the, and he says the shot whizzed right by my ear from you know from behind me on the knoll, you know. And he does not get called by the Warren Commission. I mean, come on, what kind of a what kind of an investigative body is that that won't even interview the most? Um, uh, the most obvious of witnesses. It just doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's just crazy. It's well, you, just absolutely. You mentioned crazy. some of the people who were there. The suspicious buildings. You know, like the uh, the Daltex second. Mm-hmm. But but the thing I was thinking of. What I subscribe to is someone very organized in this kind of affair at Ed Lansdale. That he would have mm-hmm. had other people there, other lower level patsies. To take the blame so that right. if there is a hit squad and then there's a bunch of criminal types, if they have to arrest somebody, then they'll grab these guys. And like, you know, like you say, they're right. arrested and then the charges are dropped because they go, well, we have our man. We, you know, yeah. these, there was lots of people that were, you know, stopped. Right. And it, you can see that even in Dealey Plaza. And like you mentioned, um, some of these guys are, it's just no way to explain it, you know, except for if you look backwards like you know well listen we got our guys we're going to have to have somebody else arrested um, yeah you know like these tramps uh they'll be just paraded right in front of everybody so all the photographers yeah. will be looking at them where our guys yeah. are sleek you know getting down the the back yeah. of the, the school book depository and getting away yeah and, and, and there's room for that kind of investigation so but that's uh, right and I'll tell you, I want to mention just one other thing, too, just in case there's anybody who's listening to the show that's just getting into the the um, JFK assassination. But um, one of the things, you know, we, the autopsy is a whole other ballgame that we can, you know, we could spend, you know, uh, 10 days on. But, but you know, if anybody's really, really interested um, – um, there's a there's a, the White House photographer Robert Knudsen, um, and, and there's not you won't hear a bad word about him by anybody. Just one of the most honest, great people. Everybody always says it. Well, you know, he was called when the plane was on the the way back from um, uh, from Dallas and told to meet the plane at Andrews Air Force Base. He left, He was gone for three days, according to his family and and what he he said. He actually photographed a second autopsy. Um, he showed the pictures of that autopsy to Joe O'Connor, another photographer. They both saw the small hole of entry in John Kennedy's forehead that blew out the back of his head. Um, that is another thing that's not gone anywhere. Those pictures existed. Both of those, both of those uh, photographers saw them. Um, and Knudsen was involved with a uh, with a, a a second autopsy, not the autopsy that you know we all know took place at um, Bethesda. So anybody that's interested or just getting started in in um, kind of the assassination of research, um, that might be a good place for you also to look. Just wanted to kind of throw that in there. <laughs> all right, Ted. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Let's do it again. And um, great. You know, it's it's great. I met you years ago when you were planning on doing a lot of work and then things got caught up with you and you seem to have time now and wow these videos are coming out it seems like 
almost once a week. One month I ago, hope so. three weeks ago, two weeks ago, 12 days, three days, ago, 13 hours. So um, just I there's a lot of people that are writing books um, saying Lee Oswald did it. And there's the um, I don't even want to mention their names, but we know the Bugliosi and the McAdams and and the Gary sure. Max. Right. So when I see such good work. Uh, that you're doing i just want to make sure everybody knows about it and they look at a couple of your videos thank you so much len thank you for having me on um you know i hope sometime before too long we can get together in person again and um you know so uh, i just um thank you so much for helping me to publicize the channel and thank you so much for your great work i really appreciate it okay thank you that's all i'm saying to you know anyone listening that uh i'm trying to promote the good stuff and everyone should uh Check out Ted Jacucci's YouTube channel and these videos um, highlighting, you know, some things you will know about, some things we already know about. But uh, every now and like, you know, when I have an author on, I have to read his book and I'm, I'm reading books on the same topic. So I know I know this, I know that. But every now and then something pops up. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. You mm -hmm. know? And sure. it's, it's bias networking and then condensing these facts. Like I think you have, yeah. oh, here it is. Yeah. Six reasons why Lee Oswald was innocent, you know? So if you want to have a conversation about it, look, it, there's just, here's a couple of things you can bring up. There's, mm -hmm. there's you know, no way. So, um, all right, we'll keep in touch. Thank, and just, Thank look, you, Len. Look, before we wrap up, then, is there anything else you wanted to bring up I didn't get to? No, uh, no. That, I think we've covered it, everything that I had on my mind. Thank you for letting me uh, kind of vent there. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, it's no problem. It's no problem. I mean, this is this is the topic and what gets somebody interested in or they have a passion for. And in, in this case, um, it's we have a, a problem with the government. It's not it's not the case that someone was killed or if it was Lee Oswald, he did it. OK, uh, can we stop it from happening again? And, um, and yeah. you go, but what happened? But it wasn't him. And, right. you know, look at this. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's there's people that are, that are talking about Bobby Kennedy, that Bobby Kennedy, Jr., uh, they're not giving him presidential protection, you know, mm. like uh, as a as a candidate. You go, mm. shit, you know, uh, you know, what's next? And I hate to even mention that. Right? Yeah. But. Uh, yeah. Right. And uh, but OK, enough enough of that politics. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. OK, good. Thank you. Good Bye, Len. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we are speaking to Jim DiEugenio from Los Angeles. Hello, Jim. Good evening, Len. Good evening. Pleasure to speak to you again. What is new in JFK world and Kennedys and King? All right. Well, let me tell you a couple of things that are coming up, which I think most of your listeners will find interesting. First of all, we have an article by Paul Abbott the guy who uh, you had on your show, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And he has done an index, the most extensive de uh, index ever to the files of Jim Garrison. So we'll have an article by him with a link to your site because you have the index there at your site. Okay. And this will be very, very helpful to uh, anybody who's truly interested and what the real truth was about Jim Garrison, okay? And, and the state of his investigation. Now, I also, uh, I offer them for free, but they're almost two gigs, so I, I have to put them on a site. But if you just email me, 
um, I send them to you and I also include the the index now but if you previously downloaded the the Garrison the papers of Jim Garrison it was all the stuff from his filing cabinets um, that we that we could get a hold of the link is there and, and you can just download that now um, okay so that's how it's two gigs yeah, 1.9 something gigs of PDFs. If you can imagine how how many that is, and you can e you can email that, or do you have to do it by Dropbox? Yeah, well, I do it by one called WeTransfer, but for the Mac, uh, people are familiar with Dropbox. It's the same kind of thing. Okay, because man, it is really a big file. Okay, so you know it's uh, very very extensive. And um, there's an essay by him that's coming up, I think, tomorrow on our website, which will give you some background and also uh, give you some insight in how to use the index. All right. See, the, the, the problem was for a very long time, and I mean a long time, I would say from the acquittal of Clay Shaw up until 1989 that the lights went out on Jim Garrison in New Orleans. And when I say they went out, I mean they really went out. It wasn't just the people on the other side. It wasn't just people who did not want to believe that there was a conspiracy. It was also people inside the critical community. Because at that time period, you know, there was the leading lights were Peter Scott, Paul Hoke, Tink Thompson, Russell Stetler, and they put out a couple of anthologies. And to be kind, and I am being kind, those people were not very appreciative of the work of Jim Garrison. You know, Paul Hoke was an extreme example. I mean, he was like out of this world. He was uh, irrational, you know, when it came to this subject. Thompson and Scott were really not that far behind. They just don't want to hear about it. All right. And so the the odd thing about this, I mean, the really odd thing about this, which is to me incredible, is that none of them even looked at Garrison's files. How the heck can you judge an inquiry or an investigation if you never look at the information there? I mean, that's that's just mind-boggling to me, you know? But And let's not, let's not, underestimate this because during that time period I'm talking about, Paul Hoke published his, I thought, rather mediocre uh, and disappointing Echoes of Conspiracy, which was one of the main journals at that time period. And Peter published something called Parapolitics. And you will look at those things and you will not find hardly one single reference to any of the original Garrison files. And what makes that even more puzzling is that they were at the Ark. A lot of them, what was left over, was at Jim Lazar's place. Now, I'm not saying all of them were there. Obviously, none of, not all of them were there. But this is the kind of thing that when people like me and Bill Davey and Peter Villa started to get into this situation after the publication of Jim Garrison's book and all of the hubbub around Oliver Stone's film – that's what we were met with. That's what we were met with, okay? And it wasn't until Bill Davies' book came out, which I believe was 95, Let Justice Be Done, 
And then Joan Mellon's book, Farewell to Justice, and my rewrite of Destiny Betrayed, which I could never have done without the ARB because they got a lot of Garrison's files also when they had to sue Harry Connick. And there was some there was a whole cabinet full of stuff in Garrison's office. And it was this this new information, okay, which had been ignored by so what would that be for two decades, all right, that changed the equation. And I'm really glad for this reason that Paul has done this. It's a real actual service to a lot of people who want to actually base their conclusions on data and information, you know, instead of spin. There was very little difference, in my opinion, between what the MSM did to Garrison versus what most of the critical community was to Garrison. Okay, I mean, I'll never forget when I did my first talk in Chicago, and I actually used the files that excuse me, of Jim Garrison that were mailed to me by Peter Villa. And this shocked a lot of people because this first time they heard about it, you know, not only was it new information about the Garrison inquiry, but also about how he was sabotaged. And it's really funny because at that conference, you know, Paul Hoke and Tink Thompson, okay, I made a comment about how, how people had judged the film without seeing it. Paul Hoke stood up and went into one of his, uh, you know, mini tantrums. And so who does he call upon? Tink Thompson to back him up. You know, I didn't say anything because I knew what my presentation was going to be about. You know, it was going to be about this new information, you know. So that was the way that I retaliated, you know, was through this new information, which had not been presented before. All right. So now we've come to this point where Paul Abbott actually did uh, partly inspired by the work of Paul Blow, because Paul did a lot of work on Garrison's files on his wonderful exposing the Fair Play for Cuba Committee article, you know, for Kennedy's and King. So this will be uh, connected very soon, and it's really something to look forward to. All right. Now, we have a two-part article. I think it's time for you to have Don McGovern back on, okay, because uh, – I did part one of Mark Shaw in Salt Salon, Texas, and he did part two, okay, of that two-part article. Don transcribed a speech by Mark Shaw that he made at the library in Allen, Texas, I believe, in 2021, which has gotten incredibly, uh, an enormous amount of viewership, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions on YouTube. For what reason? I don't know. Okay, because, you know, if you listen to this speech and dissect his speech, Mark Shaw is probably, I don't want to say he's the worst, but he's certainly one of the worst. Okay, that's out there right now. See, in my opinion, if you don't pay any attention to the newly declassified documents from the review board, I just don't think you're doing a public service to anybody. Okay, because there's a lot new that was in those documents. I could have never written the second edition of Destiny Betrayed without those documents. I mean, how can anybody ignore 
the Jeremy Gunn Doug Horn investigation of the medical evidence. Well, by the way, I'll have a question up because I, there's about three letters I have here that I should have gotten to earlier, but we'll talk about Shaw and that. Okay. And then, of course, since he couldn't write everything about Dorothy Kilgallen forever, she then drags in Marilyn Monroe on the basis that somehow Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen are good buddies. Okay. And that somehow she was investigating her death. Well, there's a lot of people who disagree with that, including Gary Vitaco Robles, who has written a magisterial two-part biography of Marilyn Monroe. All right. He concludes this thing, and this is why I think you should get Don McGovern on, with one of the most outrageous perorations that I've probably ever seen or heard anyone talk about. And I'll leave that up to Don. Okay, so hopefully you can get him on again and he can talk about this outrageous polemic that Mark Shaw ended his speech with. I actually wrote a letter to the director of the library of cultural affairs. Okay, and I uh, enclosed both parts of this article for him to read. And I told him, you know, in my opinion, you are really giving the public a very disappointing instruction in the new fact of the John Kennedy case. And there are a lot of new facts. And the other problem is, you know, Shaw's a lawyer. And I wrote in my part, I go, how can anyone, he was a criminal defense lawyer, how can anybody do this presentation knowing that almost no part of it would ever in, get into a trial? It would be objected to. Okay, and and the judge would probably rule against admitting his stuff because it's so weak and it's so weakly sourced. I mean, can you imagine someone's still relying on that book Double Cross in these this day and age? Please. All right. Now, the other new article we have up there is my review of Jeff Meeks and his book, The JFK Files, Pieces of the Assassination Puzzle. Have you interviewed him yet? No, I haven't. I'm going through the book right now. I like it. Okay, okay, good. All right, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And his his interviews with, for example, Leslie Weaselman and Dan Hardway of the House Select Committee, I think are very, very good and very much worth reading. I mean, he interviewed a lot of people. I mean, a lot. He's the only guy I know who has a regular column, okay, on the on the JFK case in this small town newspaper, and he does a really good job. Okay, he also interviewed Roland Zavada and John Tunheim, among many many others. Okay, so this is like a collection of his best work, which you're not going to get anywhere else because the newspaper is not a big circulation newspaper. So if you want to read what Jeff wrote, um, this is. Uh, since you're going to have him on, he can give you more information about that. All right. And there's also another book I'm reading. Who are, has James Norwood sent you his book yet? Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm still going through uh, Jeff Meek. Yeah. James Norwood has a new book out. And it's an interesting idea he has. It's called Former People. And it's about three major players. You know, Khrushchev. John F. Kennedy and Lee Harvey Oswald. And it's about how more or less the MSM buried all three of them. 
you know, in the wake of the Kennedy assassination. All right. Okay, so good. Uh, so that looks interesting. So you have a you have a couple people there, Jeff Meeks and James Norwood. All right. Now you had Bart Camp on already, right? Yes. Okay, you did an interview him a couple weeks ago. Yeah. I just finished his book, and I'm about to finish my review. I'll probably finish it tonight. And his book is called Prayer Man: More Than a Fuzzy Picture. Yeah, Prayer Man: More Than a Fuzzy Picture. Now, Stan Dane wrote a book about – well, first of all, does everybody – do you think I have to explain who Prayer Man is? Do you think I should do that? Sure. Always a safe bet to, to go through that, right? Yeah, okay. All right. Let, let me explain this. There's a figure in the foyer or whatever you want to call it, the porch of the Texas School Book Depository. Yeah, the front steps. Right. Okay. And I'm not talking about what everybody thought was Lee Harvey Oswald, it turned out to be Billy Lovelady. I'm not talking about that figure. I'm talking about a figure who's behind that figure, okay? And he's kind of at a three-quarter profile with his hands together, which is why they call him Prayer Man. And if you look at the best pictures of this, and there's some really lousy ones, there are some people who believe that it's Oswald. In fact, there's a lot of people who believe it is. And what Bart's book does among a few other things, is it traces the history of this figure. And contrary to popular belief, see, most people think it began with Sean Murphy, who was an Irish JFK aficionado, who was on more than a couple of uh, forums. And around 2000, I think it was 2000, from 2007 to 2015, Sean Murphy promoted this idea at the JFK Lancer Forum, but those have mostly been lost because they were hacked, okay? And at the uh, Spartacus JFK Ed Forum. And in fact, the latter one was mo one of the most interesting threads that I've ever seen on any JFK forum. Sean Murphy did a tour de force on this subject, but that's not where it started. See, one, a long time ago, I was going through Garrison's files and I saw a reference to a guy named, I think his name is Richard Barnaby. And Barnaby was an English, I think an English professor out of Ontario. Okay, I think it's, isn't there something called Queen's College up there? And he was a, yeah, it was Richard Burnaby. And he was a professor up there. And he had become interested in the photographic evidence. And of course, if you're interested in the photograph, come back that time, you talk to Richard Sprague. Okay, but we also talked to Weisberg. And he also talked to a young man who at that time was Harold Weisberg's protege, Howard Rothman. Rothman, of course, was a child prodigy. I think he wrote his book, Presumed Guilty, when he was 19 years old or something. Okay, he then went on to become a lawyer. Okay, and then he became the attorney for George Lucas, okay, after he graduated. All right, and he's left his JFK stuff more or less behind. Of course, if you're, in the, you're making that kind of money, so who wouldn't? Okay, but, but anyway, that was the correspondence circle. And Richard Burnaby did some utterly fascinating work discovering this figure in the doorway 
and he was a very gifted sketch artist, okay? And he went ahead and became the first person who actually went ahead and mapped out this figure to any real degree, you know, of, of delineation. And although Garrison had heard about it, I don't think he ever talked to Burnaby, which is a real shame. Okay, you know, uh, so that's when I first got introduced to this thing in a real, real way. And Bart, part of his book, is doing a history of that whole prayer man figure. Okay, now his book is not just about prayer man. I would say about 100 pages are devoted to that figure, all right? And there, there's no, there's no, I don't think anybody can argue with the point I'm about to make. That whole reopened Kennedy case forum, which used to be run by Greg Parker, uh, is now run by Stan Dane. They more or less devoted themselves to this cause because they really truly believe it's Oswald, all right? Um, but they, have promoted this and on top of that the other thing that Bart talks about in his book and I don't know if you I didn't listen to that interview so if I'm overlapping it just tell me okay the other thing that he talks about he believes that because of what Oswald said as depicted in the notes of James Hostey and Will Fritz indicating that he was outside. And in the, the Fritz notes, he actually said something like outside with Bill Shelley. And as Bart notes in his book, how would he know that Shelley was outside if he wasn't out there himself? Okay, <laughs> you know, all right. And so they believe that what happened is that with the help of FBI agent Nat Pinkston, Pinkston cooperated with Truly to get Marion Baker to change his story. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, in Marion Baker's first day affidavit, there is no mention of the encounter at the soda machine and the lunch counter on the second floor. Let me repeat that again. In his first day affidavit, there is no mention of the second fuller lunch encounter and the bottle of soda pop that day by Baker. This evolved over time. Uh, it was uh, Marvin Johnson, a guy on the Dallas police force, was very instrumental in changing Baker's story. All right. He even said that Baker recognized Oswald in a lineup, you know, which something Baker denied. What really happened is that Baker was in the witness room at the same time Oswald was in the witness room. And if you can believe it, I've never been able to find any evidence that Baker approached Oswald. 
and said, aren't you the guy I just shoved a gun in his gut to about an hour or two ago? That didn't happen. What Baker actually said in his affidavit is he encountered somebody on the third or fourth floor. And the description that he gave of the guy he encountered was not Oswald. All right. So the other part of the book is that he questions this whole thing about the lunchroom encounter on the second floor. And he believes it was done in order to deprive Oswald of his alibi that he was outside. Now, the second half of the book is, is a very long discussion and analysis of the Dallas police interrogations of Oswald. To put that into a nutshell, he believes that at the end of the first day that the Dallas police had next to nothing. Okay. And in fact, he closed the book with a Hoover memorandum, which Hoover wrote, I believe, on the 24th, in which he talks about how hapless the Dallas police were. And it was only when his FBI agents connected the mailing of the coupon to Kleins in Chicago that that's what really made the case for them. But he qualifies this by saying one of the main arguments in his book is that on the first day, there really was no mention of Heidel by the Dallas police. And if it was, it was ambiguous. So he questions that whole origin of that selective service card. Did the Dallas police actually have it on the first day? Okay. So those are some of the, um, and like I said, my review will be going up pretty soon. So that's uh, a, 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 a brief discussion of Bart Camp's interesting book. All right. Now, let's get to some of these letters. Okay, September the 9th, 2023. David Norris. One of the most often cited reasons why the JFK assassination was not a conspiracy is the argument someone would have talked. When someone says that, we know they've never really looked into the Kennedy case. Anyone who has done so we'll quickly come across many incidents of predictions or intimations about the assassination. I was wondering if you're aware of any authoritative source where all these such incidents have been gathered into a single collection, which we could then point any skeptics to. Below is a partial list based on my own surface reading. Thank you in advance for your reply and for all your superb tireless efforts. Okay. Okay. David Norris is from the United Kingdom. He leads off with Silviodio, which is a very, very good example, because I've often said that she's a, just a terrific witness. Okay, we know the whole story about Angel and Leopoldo, and the next day uh, they talked about their third partner, Leon, an expert marksman who wanted JFK assassinated. So Silviodio is, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, is one of the best witnesses we have. Rose Sheremy, okay, the audio incident is in late September. Rose Sheremy, November the 20th, 1963, okay, predicted the assassination of JFK in advance and warned police and medical people Okay, that it was upcoming. 
another very good witness who I've written extensively about. Richard Case Nagel, an apparent double agent hired by the Russians to dissuade or murder Oswald before the assassination. Nagel warned the CIA and the FBI before firing a pistol into an El Paso bank about a month before the assassination. Okay, so he could be safely in prison to avoid being directly involved in the assassination. I don't have to talk about it. Everybody knows about Richard Case Nagel. As Jim Garrison once said, he was the best witness in the case. Okay, Joseph Miltier, who's on tape uh, with William Somerset, predicting that there would be an assassination attempt, okay, from an office building with a high-powered rifle. All right. Thomas Arthur Vallee, and he's, of course, part of the Chicago plot. He was more or less going to be the Oswald in Chicago, okay, which happened, I think, what, November 2nd or November 3rd, you know, approximately three weeks before the actual Dallas assassination. Okay, there was an editorial, I think Don Gibson actually dug this up. There was an editorial in Fortune magazine in May 1962 called The Ides of April, okay, that appeared to warn JFK of his fate in the same way that Julius Caesar was warned, okay? I think that's in Battling Wall Street. It's a very, very interesting piece of, uh, of literature that hardly anybody talks about. Then, of course, there's Eugene Dinkin, the Army codebreaker, okay, who on November the 6th told reports uh, in the press room in Geneva that there was going to be a plot to kill JFK. All right. Uh, Dick Russell did a very good uh, chronicle of the whole Eugene Dinkin case, which, of course, was hushed up and submerged for a long period of time. All right. Uh, then he lists Chief Rowley, the Secret Service guy, an article in Reader's Digest outlining how easy it'd be to assassinate a president with a high-powered rifle. That's one I didn't know about. I really didn't know about that one. Did you? No. I'm always learning new things. Yeah. Yeah, there's only so much you can... You know, and, and even sometimes when I'm going through these books, like you were just talking about, you know, good books on the assassination, I know quite a bit, I know quite a bit, and then all of a sudden something pops up. You know, like, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, then he lists Karen Kupusinet, but that's been, that's that's really not accurate. Okay, Greg Parker's done a lot of good work on Karen Kupusinet, and that's been misinterpreted. Okay, then there's the FBI telex. Of November the 17th, 1963, the claim made by William Walter, okay, that there was going to be an assassination attempt on JFK in a few days, okay? William Walter was a pretty credible guy. Then there's a whole thing about James Perot and George H.W. Bush, okay? Um, George H.W. Bush calling the FBI and saying there was a guy talking about uh, killing JFK. The Cambridge News, which 
that's a very interesting story. A local UK paper received a tip about the assassination 25 minutes before it actually took place. Again, there's not enough written about that. That's a very interesting story that not enough people have dug into. Okay, and then, of course, there's John F. Kennedy, who seemed to have a kind of premonition that something was going to happen to him and either ignored it or just more or less accepted it. Okay, uh, and there's many of these quotes that he that uh, David Norris uses from JFK and the Unspeakable. There's about three of them. You know, one of them is if somebody wants to shoot me from a window with a rifle, nobody can stop it. So why worry about it? And there's that famous one about we're really headed in the nut country now. Okay, which they are, which they were. Okay, thank you so much, David. All right, now here's one from September the 12th from David Hughes. All right. Hi, James. I hope you are well. I've been watching videos covering the assassination recently and wondered if I could check the credibility of some of the points raised. I appreciate you are busy and may not be able to assist. Okay, JFK's brain. Mark Shaw claims in an interview that the brain was buried at Arlington and he has a photograph of two men with the brain in the cardboard box. Oh, my God. This is one of the problems with Mark Shaw. Those photographs of the reinterment have been around for a long, long, long time. It's not like he has them. A lot of people, you can find them online. This is when they moved JFK's burial area because there were so many people coming to see it that they had to put it in a more convenient place. All right. Now, look, anybody who's realistic understands that that's not any proof of anything, okay? The question is, and this is something that Mark Shaw ignores habitually, the question is chain of possession, okay? Was Kennedy's brain really buried with the body or was it not now we in our film JFK revisited we made a very good argument that these pictures and the illustrations made for the House Select Committee cannot be of JFK's brain I'm really glad Oliver stuck by us and put that in the film all right those pictures depict a brain that weighs 1,500 grams. It's next to impossible for JFK's brain to weigh that much because that's above the average. The average, I think, is about 1,340. So how could JFK's brain, which we see exploding in the Z film, we see Jackie Kennedy jumping out the back of the car to retrieve a part of the skull? with all that blood and tissue all over the back seat of the car, okay, with the cyclist on the left side being hit so hard with a piece of brain that he thought he was hit by a bullet. With all that damage, okay, how in God's name can JFK's brain weigh 1,500 grams? All right? All right, so whatever those pictures depict, 
I have very little doubt that it's not really Kennedy's brain. They never wanted that thing to be shown to anybody. And it wasn't even weighed that night of the assassination. Let me repeat that. JFK's brain was not weighed the night of the assassination. Why? And I can give you about 12 witnesses at both Parkland and Bethesda who will testify that JFK's brain was severely damaged. Some of them say as much as one-third of it was blasted away. All right? So again, how can JFK's brain weigh 1,500 grams? All right? All right. Now, TSB bullet shells. I believe Jim Douglas claims that the empty shells found on the sixth floor were traced by the FBI to a special consignment made by Smith and Wesson for the CIA. Uh, that appears to be true. Okay. And Gary Muir, who is a very good researcher out of Canada. Okay. Did a lot of good work on that particular part. Given that the JFK motorcade route was changed and only made public a few days prior to Kennedy's visit, why have people not questioned why Oswald took the job at the Texas School Book Depository a month earlier before the information was known. Well, that really doesn't make a heck of a lot of difference because there was always this debate about the trademark and the Women's Center. Okay. And it would have, the motorcade route, you know, would have had to gone through. Dealey Plaza, one way or the other, either straight down Elm or straight down Maine. Okay. Uh, I think everybody who's done any research on that uh, would agree with that. Although nobody thought, my God, are we really going to do this dog leg, you know, in front of the Texas School Book Depository? You know, and it's a mythology, of course, to believe that that dog leg was necessary. It's not true. The House Select Committee did some research on this. And they said, no, it didn't have to go that way. All right, but it did go that way. That's what makes it so incredibly interesting. If it didn't have to go that way, why did they, why did they do that? And that's one of the questions that never gets solved. I mean, hardly everything gets asked. Okay. Firecrackers. Many witnesses claim to have heard the sound of firecrackers as the motorcade passed down Elm. Was a possibility ever investigated the sounds were firecrackers being used as a decoy tactic? No, I've never seen it investigated, either by the Warren Commission, the House Select Committee, or the Church Committee. All right, it's an interesting point. Zapruder film. Jack White claims that the Z film has been... The late Jack White claims that the Z film has been heavily doctored and seems to put up a convincing argument. However, a number of respected researchers argue against the idea. What is the most likely to be the truth with this theory of the Zapruder film? I'm an agnostic on that. I don't consider the films and photographs to be my area of specialty. And I really, I really don't like getting into this debate. Because it's so, you know, it's so, uh, you know, it's so vociferous 
between the people who say that there is evidence for an altered Zapruder film and the other people on the other side, like Bob Groden, who says, no, there is not Bob Groden and David Rohn for our two examples. So I've been an agnostic on this. I really don't think my opinion really means a heck of a lot anyway, because like I said, I'm, I'm not, that's not my field of expertise. <clears throat> the Parkland Doctors. Listening to an interview with McClelland, he suggested that nobody at Parkland on the day of the assassination <coughs> was aware of the back wound to JFK. Is this likely or have I misunderstood what he's what he said? I think that's pretty much true. You know, there might be one or two people, okay, uh, you know, lower down the hierarchy who were aware of it, but the majority of the doctors, because they were so intent on trying to resuscitate JFK, all right, uh, and doing all these things, you know, to try and revive him and restore his heartbeat, et cetera. Okay, it, they, weren't, they weren't really, you know, interested in turning the body over. Okay, that really wouldn't have served their purpose. Okay. Uh, but we do know, of course, that the main point about all this was that the the autopsy doctors called Malcolm Perry that night and tried to get him to change his story. And one of the things they used was the back one. Okay. They were actually, if you can believe it, by hook or by crook, I really don't think it was their idea. It's probably some of the Secret Service agents that were there or the Pentagon guys. You know, they were trying to say that they wanted him to take back his story about the neck wound being an entrance wound. Okay. And since they weren't aware of the back wound, that's probably what it was. All right. Now, that idea did not take solid hold until about three or four, about four or five months later. When Spectre dreamt up, you know, the whole magic bullet theory. And since we know from Epstein's last book, he confronted the Warren Commission and said, look, we either go with the magic bullet or we start looking for a second assassin. All right. And they weren't going to start looking for a second assassin in April. Okay. All right. So anyway, thank you so much, David Hughes. All right. Joseph or or a shack. Okay, this is a guy from Canada. Okay. Oh, Ontario. We seem to have a lot of listeners in Ontario. All right. Jim, this is September 24th. I was reading Rex Bradford's essay at Mary Farrell, and he mentioned Pena and his testimony about Debris and Oswald before the HSCA is, his name is Oras Pena. Is Pena credible in your view? Why did the HSCA conclude that Pena should not be believed, but Debris should be believed? Was it simply that Pena's testimony made Oswald out to be an FBI informer, which the U.S. government could never acknowledge? 
what is your opinion of DeVries? He sure is a shady character in the Oswald saga. I'd like to compliment Johnny Cairn's articles at Kennedy's and King. The intro captures my feelings about why I regard JFK as a great leader and why his murder deserved a careful, complete, and honest investigation. All right. First question. I tend to believe Pena, and I tend to not to believe Debris. Debris, I met Debris before he passed on. Okay. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that he followed Aaron Cohn as the head of the Metropolitan Crime Commission in New Orleans. Aaron Cohn was a big enemy of Jim Garrison. All right. He used to be an FBI agent. Debris eventually followed him into that office. Okay. Debris, of course, was a big fan of J. Edgar Hoover. Had a big picture of him in his living room. All right. Completely idolized him. All right. And, uh, and there were, by the way, that picture was him shaking hands with Hoover. All right. And he becomes the chairman of the MCC. I don't think that was a coincidence. All right. I, um, the upper class in New Orleans knew that they had a lot to hide when it came to the assassination. So they installed two FBI agents to run the M MCC. Um, I believe there's a lot of evidence that says Pena was correct, that Oswald was being used not just by the FBI, but by customs, okay, and I think the hushed-up testimony of David Smith, all right, which um, some of us have really found to be so interesting that the church committee took, they essentially said that they were tracking David Ferry because David Ferry was so involved with the Cuban uh, exiles. Many of them were here illegally, all right? And since they were tracking Ferry, they followed him in to Bannister's office, and they noticed Oswald at the time. And when the church committee discovered this, Smith said something like, I've been waiting for 12 years to tell somebody about this. So I think that Pena was correct about – and by the way, Jim Garrison talks about the information that he had with Oswald meeting with people from the customs office okay, in New Orleans. He mentions it in passing in his book. All right. Now, Debris, when I met with him, he said he didn't ha really didn't have any interest in the JFK assassination. Well, when he went out to his kitchen to talk to his wife, I wandered around his house for a minute, and I went into his study. There were about 15 books on the JFK assassination in his study. All right. So here's a guy who really knew that there was a lot to hide, and he was looking up, you know, uh, what he needed to know and not know, all right? Um, 
DeBreeze was the guy that Oswald originally wanted to talk to when he was arrested for that pseudo fight with Bringier. All right, if you remember, Oswald was arrested for disturbing the peace. DeBreeze got off. Oswald got in prison and fined. When he was in a holding cell, he told the police, Martello, that he wanted to talk to the FBI, and he requested DeBreeze. When William Walter went over to look at the files, Oswald was supposedly in the DeBreeze file as a confidential informant, except the file was locked, and he couldn't open it. All right. All right. So they sent somebody else down. I think it was Quigley. And Oswald had this amazing. Some people say it was an hour. Some people say it was two hours. An interview with the FBI about what had just happened that day. What was there to say if it was on the up and up? Okay. You know, I got in a fight with this this nutty Cuban exile, Carlos Springley. All right. He thought I was trying to infiltrate his group. How long does it take to say that? All right. Okay, so anyway, um, also, DeBreeze was then transferred to Dallas. And he was more or less, from what I, he told me, he was running the FBI inquiry into the Kennedy assassination. And he was also involved with transferring the evidence from Dallas to the FBI headquarters. Okay. So, yes, DeBreeze was a very interesting character. And today I tend to believe Pena uh, over DeBreeze. All right. Now, oh, Johnny Cairns is doing a six part article um, for the anniversary. And we have two of them up already. And we will have the next two up probably in a couple of weeks. And then the final two in the early part of November. So it will be a six-part article, you know, for the 60th anniversary. And Johnny does some very good work. You should have him on when the whole thing is up there. Okay? All right, Len. That's it for the letters. We're all caught up. Okay, very good. All right, well, we'll just keep in touch, and I'll talk to you next week or so. Okay, Len. Have All a right. good night, buddy. Thank you. Okay, good Bye-bye. night.